welcome to Talkie Talk, podcast for the media by us. Uh, this is uh, David, and I'm joined by Brent. Hello. Chris. Hello. And TJ. Hey. We've got everybody all together, but not together. <laughs> we keep saying that. You probably hear that, I guess, all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're going to talk about what we've been watching in the last week, touch on some uh, maybe reality roundup, as well as maybe a little uh, dip our toe into the week's film, TV, and video game news. Um, but as far as what we've been watching and or playing, anyone want to jump start the car? I will. Uh, <clears throat> I just watched a brand new movie. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've recorded a watch list, so it's... Um, you know, there's definitely a ton of shit that I could say, but uh, I'll, I'll focus on the new. Um, I watched the buzzy movie, uh, John Henry, yesterday. Um, it is Terry Crews as the titular John Henry, and it is a wild movie. Um, uh, have you guys heard about John Henry yet? It came out like this week. I've yeah, I've heard like some things, but mostly mixed yeah same the first time i heard it was from you chris when you said you were going to watch it and then i saw <laughs> harry cruz and ludicrous in it and i thought that sounds about right <laughs> yeah ludicrous plays a character named hell um <clears throat> but it's like um I, I think that it's like an honest attempt at taking like a hood drama that genre um and making it like a little artsy little avant-garde um with uh, Terry Crews driving, uh, which I really like Terry Crews. I think he's uh, a boatload of fun. Um, he really doesn't get to have any fun. He's like this kind of emotionless, like gangster turned uh, uh, pacifist, like won't touch a gun and uh, beats everyone up with a sledgehammer, um, which is pretty gross to watch. Um, <clears throat> at all, any point in the movie, do his little peck dance from Brooklyn Nine Nine and his life. Uh, no, life. but he should. <laughs> you know that thing from him. Um, so does he? So he won't. He won't use a gun, but he will just bludgeon someone with a sledgehammer. Oh yeah, I mean he smashes a guy in the like sandwiches a guy's head between like a telephone pole and the head of his sledgehammer. And that's okay, but touching a gun is a no-no. Yeah, I thought it was like really, it sounded really interesting when I thought he was like a pacifist gangster or something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely thought that it was going to be a little more directed, not like from like the filmmaking perspective, but from like the writing perspective. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a little carried away in its non-linear storytelling nature. And uh, it frustrates the message a little um, that like they show the flashback, which is the, the story as to why John Henry doesn't use guns. And it's, you know, not like, it's kind of like something you'd predict, right? Like he, and a he's, allergic. Like, he's allergic. <laughs> is that it? He's allergic. He's allergic. Is there any, uh, any relation to, the obvious John Henry of folklore who beat a machine for the railroad. Is that well, the, well, the sledgehammer. The sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that part tracks. <laughs> yeah, I think that it is definitely paying homage to that. Um, they like there's like a folklore like uh, song that kind of runs periodically throughout, um, talking about like the legend of John Henry. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, but so they, they do this flashback and it goes back and it's him and his cousin and they're like in a garage and they're playing with a gun or his cousin's giving him a gun and it like goes off and shoots the guy in the head. Now he never touches guns anymore. But like bookending that flashback is like a love letter music video to Los Angeles where there is a three and a half minute like just like montage of like scenes from Crenshaw and like all these street signs. And it's just like unnecessary and really kind of self-indulgent in a way that I think that it shouldn't or doesn't need to be. Um, but I really wish his backstory was opposite where instead he only touches guns because once he dropped a sledgehammer and it ricocheted and bludgeoned his friend to death on impact. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's some, there's some like fun dialogue. There's one scene. It's like two like uh, like gang like soldiers in a car, and their conversation is really funny. Uh, one of the guys just goes like, "Hey, front, front middle, or back?" And the guy's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "A human centipede. Like, what? Where would you want to be, front middle or back?" And they talk about it. And he's like, "Why the fuck are you talking to me about human centipedes?" And the guy's like because we need to know what these white people are doing. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a really humorous scene. And there's like shit like that kind of peppered throughout, which, you know, in hindsight is like pretty tone deaf uh, to the rest of the movie, but um, it's entertaining. I give it three stars. Um, you know, it's not like a, it's, you know, you could, you could miss it and your life would you know, not be poorer for it. So, that's so my new thing. A, a very soft recommendation. Yeah, like uh, if you're the kind of person who watches everything that hits the front page on Netflix, then like you'll watch it and you'll probably like it. Um, that sounds more interesting than it had to be, at least. Yeah. Like it's another revenge guy killing a lot of people. Yeah, and it's, uh, sorry, every one of my programs on my computer are in full screen, so I'm trying to pull up the browser. Um, I also have the world's loudest mechanical keyboard, so apologies. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is ASMR. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to pull the director, so I wanted to ask you guys if you'd heard of the director. It's um, Will Forbes. I looked him up while we were talking about it, and uh, he, it seemed like it's his directorial debut, but I don't know what his background is. Okay. Um, Oh yeah, he's he's credited as the uh, the writer and director for John Henry. That's his IMDb page. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, I mean he did it. He did it. Yeah, I mean it's it's like a it's an all right movie. Like it's you know yeah. for for a directorial debut, it's not like breaking down doors. But oh man, I just saw that that Sabin published it, which is the company that published uh, Power Rangers. Nice. Cool. Anyway, I'm not going to, this is not the, the Google Goog podcast. This is the talkie talk. I'll stop doing things. Uh, Put that on my ideal list though. <laughs> it's the Google Goog podcast. <laughs> that's a podcast for babies and internet sleuths. Um, but yeah, that's all I want to talk about. I watched the Atlanta Child Murder stuff. It's a really competently well put together uh, documentary series, um, five episodes. It is uh, not on my talk list, but I did watch it. It is really, really good. I would highly recommend it to anybody who likes 
uh, true crime stuff or honestly anybody who lives in or near Atlanta now because it's this sounds horrible but it's cool to see like Atlanta in that time period you know what I mean yeah what's that streaming on it's HBO it's called Atlanta's missing and murdered um, there are a lot of doc series about the uh, child murders so um, we originally started the first episode and it was like some true TV one that ran um, but I think I believe it's called Atlanta's Missing and Murdered. If you search Atlanta, it pulls up because I kept forgetting the name of it every week when yeah. we go to watch it. Um, I go. I go. Can I do my turn now? You go. Um, I watched a couple of things I got talked about on podcasts, and I really just like wholeheartedly agree with the reviews that. Uh, Burton had on one of them, and that, that everybody had on another. Uh, I watched The Way Back, the Ben Affleck movie from this year, uh, much better than it had any business being. Um, a good ending, and Ben Affleck's pretty great in it. I mean, I, the movie's not like groundbreaking, but no. um, it was really good, and I had a lot of fun watching it. I put it on to fall asleep too, and ended up watching the whole thing. Um, it's a really good, simple drama, just yeah. like that's it's all you're getting, it's just a drama. Yep. And I also uh, caught uh, Pixar's Onward, which was just fucking phenomenal. Um, like, made me want to call my brothers immediately <laughs> for yeah. watching that movie. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, definitely don't miss that one. Uh, and I think it's out if you just have Disney Plus now. Um, it's out for free. Uh, then I watched uh, uh, a couple of movies. Uh, one old, and I normally don't, don't do this, but it was a movie that I found actually interesting. I watched Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Um, which I'd never seen. Uh, and it's kind of the first uh, major studio, like, single shot film. Uh, I think he did it in 10 takes, and they're broken down on the Wikipedia page. And it is very obvious when he is breaking. Um, but you kind of give him a pass on that. He was trying something kind of new at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing takes place in one apartment. It's about 80 minutes long. And it was uh, really great and really fucking creepy. I mean, it starts with... Uh, two like preppy college grads uh like executing this guy in the apartment like you hear it and then you go in and his body's on the ground and they put him in a chest and they start getting ready for a party and they like eat off the chest where the guy body is the whole movie and it's super creepy and really good if you like hitchcock i'm sure you you'd like it um that, you know that's like uh what, what is hitchcock's the one who said that uh surprise is when a bomb goes off in a scene and uh but like mystery is when you are shown a bomb and it doesn't go off and i feel like that movie is kind of his exploration of that specific idea which is just like there's a dead body and you're shown that dead body and you know who did it (laughs) you know who did it and so you're just like tense waiting on the discovery of the dead body Oh, and so many great moments of people like hovering around the chest. You know what I mean? And you just are waiting for somebody to discover it. It's uh, I, bet the, I, I can't. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I, there's. Pro, I feel like there's probably a scene where it's like somebody's like, "Oh, I'll get it out of the chest," and they're about to, and then someone's like, "No, wait, I've got it right here." And they're just like, "Okay." Pretty much, and it's just like <laughs> constant like dread. Yeah. Uh, watching it, um, and Jimmy Stewart plays their like old college professor, and he's Jimmy Stewart and fantastic in it. Yeah, um, I, I have it, but I've, I still haven't watched it. You make me want to uh, put it on because it does sound really interesting and inventive. So it was good too for like a 
it was 10 o'clock at night and it was like in between, do we start a movie or not time? And I was like, Oh, this one's 80 minutes long. We have time for that. You know what I mean? Perfect. Um, so yeah, really good. Uh, and really good costuming, uh, which I think was probably needed for a film that has, you know, it's done in real time. The movie is so, uh, Interesting movie, though. And then I watched a couple of 2020 uh, movies. That still sounds weird to say, the year. Um, I watched Underwater. Uh, has anybody seen that yet? That's the uh, Kristen Stewart horror movie. Um, she works at, like, an oil rig, and uh, some crazy shit happens, and a bunch of shit blows up, and her and a small crew have to walk from one rig at the bottom of the ocean to another rig and they just walk across the bottom of the ocean and there are monsters that attack them and kill them along the way. Uh, it's her. And, uh, the only other people I recognize were John Gallagher jr. He was in newsroom and he was in hush. I think he was the bad guy in hush. Yeah. Short term 12 too. Short term 12 is yeah. We're the first time I saw him and TJ Miller reprises his role from Cloverfield pretty much. <laughs> it's strange. Um, which is just being TJ Miller at this point. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, movie was pretty horrible. Chris <laughs> uh, Stewart was okay. By far the best part of the movie. Um, yeah, I, I don't really know what to say. There's there's a bunch of little monsters, and then there's a big monster at the end that held all the little monsters the whole time, like we've seen hundreds of times. And then she decides that she can kill it, and she does. I, I recognize <laughs> the, French, the French guy who was in it, but I clicked on him, and I was like, where did I recognize him from? It's like, oh yeah, that's right. He used the uh, the director from Black Swan, uh, which Kelly and I just rewatched recently. I and sadly know him as uh, the other thief in like Ocean's the Fox 12. or whatever in Ocean Twelve. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think his dad is like a French actor of some renown too. He's he's actually I think a really well known actor like in French cinema. But yeah, I haven't seen as much of that, so I know him from Ocean's Twelve. Yeah, Jean Pierre <laughs> Castle, exactly. Castle, yeah, his. Vincent Castle. Yeah. Maybe. His dad's filmography is fucking it's a novel. <laughs> yeah. He's a guy you recognize too. He's I've seen him in a Cassavetti's movie where he's really, really good, but that's uh, about it for him too. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so you I don't, rec- have, don't have much to say about underwater. You don't <laughs> recommend it. I, I do not recommend it at all in any way. <laughs> um and then I watched a movie that I do recommend and it's uh um I don't know how to say this on the podcast. I would rent it for you on Voodoo. <laughs> you so, did it. You get, did good job. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll tell you all if you don't understand what that means, what it means later. But it's uh, Ben Zeitlin's sophomore effort. I watched uh, Wendy. Oh, right. That's out? Yeah, it's out and uh, on Voodoo and um, sitting there ready to watch. And it's fucking great. The reviews oh, are not, not great, but I was in love with it. Uh, the entire time. It takes place in uh, like the rural south, like it looks like northern Mississippi or Louisiana uh, and a mom who runs a little diner there and her three kids, two boys and a girl that live and they see a small child uh, waving them on to jump on a train one day because a train is coming by and they jump on and go to Neverland and it's all oddly realistic and in the same way fantasy um i mean it is definitely a retelling of peter pan and almost kind of an origin story of a peter pan that we never saw um 
there's, I just loved it. I thought it was shot amazing. And I mean, I also loved Beasts of the Southern Wild. Just yeah. bits, what I Same. I know me and you and you know, a bunch of other people that love that movie were waiting for his follow-up. Because I think Beasts of the Southern Wild was 2012. Yes. And it's been eight years and it's just such a assured and inventive debut. And we just needed some more stuff, Ben. Yeah, nominated for uh, Best Director uh, at the Academy Awards for his first film. And, I mean, he's 37 now. So he was 29 when he made Beasts of the Southern Wild or started making it. Um, but, I mean, that's his filmography is Beasts of the Southern Wild and Wendy. Those two movies. Um, but but Wendy was just uh, so pretty. The music was amazing. The kid acting was phenomenal. And uh, um, I was just engrossed from minute one of that movie. Yeah, I was just looking up who the kids were. It looks like they were all pretty much like first-time film actors. Yeah, he did it again for like next to no money. Yeah. Um, and kind of had the same thing from Beasts of the Southern Wild where you could see where like 90% of that money went after the movie's over. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, just to a, a few scenes here and there. Uh, but it just, yeah, I can't recommend Wendy enough. Probably my my movie of the year so far. Nice. Cool. Nice. Yeah, I'm so surprised it's out already. I feel like it kind of uh, just snuck out there. Yeah, for sure. But that's all I got. Well, cool. Well, I can go next. Uh, I watched uh, a couple old ones, a new one, and been playing a game. Uh, I'll talk about the new movie first. I watched um, I watched the half of it. Um, we had talked about, uh, I think it came out a week or two ago. I think since it came out, it's getting a little bit of steam. But this is the Netflix original kind of teen romancy in a vibe of um, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Um, it's about a... Um, it's an Asian lesbian teenager in high school who goes full like Serrano de Bergerac and starts writing love letters on behalf of a jock to a popular girl um, because the jock can't write and express his emotion. And she does it for money because she's literally on the other side of the train tracks. Like they live at a train station that her immigrant father who speaks very little English works at. Um, so it's pretty. It's a little little quirky. It's it's ve- it's set in the Pacific Northwest, and it's very. I don't know. It's just very that setting. It reminds me a lot of uh, if you guys have ever played the game Life is Strange, kind of that yeah. aesthetic and that that music and that vibe going on. Um, this is pretty good. I think my review was basically like it's very lovely and charming, and it's going to do exactly what you think it's going to do. <laughs> Forgot it. Nice. Um, yeah, the uh, the protagonist, who's Leah Lewis, I think it's one of her first movies. She's really good in it. Has very sardonic, um, glasses-wearing nerd who's very cultural and, you know, keeps this jock informed about, you know, the popular girl just so happens to be into, like, Vim Vendors and all this, like, <laughs> crazy arty stuff that's kind of a, a flex for the filmmaker to to kind of crib from. But uh, she's really good in it, and um, you know, we we talked about this brand a couple of weeks ago when it was coming out. Is this was uh, the director Alice Wu's first movie in 16 years? Like her debut, oh, yeah. 2004. Uh, she won like a Gotham Award for the best debut, and this is her follow up 16 years later. 
Um, and as a, uh, she's a Asian American um, lesbian filmmaker. There's not a lot of those voices out there. Said she had trouble finding stuff, and she stepped away to you know care for an ailing mother. And it's just sometimes uh, like the when you got a big debut, you can't immediately follow it up. It's just an interesting, interesting story that she finally kind of got back out there in a Netflix movie that's going to be seen by a lot of people. Kind of an interesting story. I think there's a, like a New Yorker article about her her journey that's really really interesting. Yeah, there's a New York Times article that talks about her first movie, Saving Face. Uh, it says it was like the first movie since Joy Luck Club to focus on Chinese Americans, uh, yeah. which was like 1993, I think, for the Joy Luck Club. So, fuck. I think it was, it was the, uh, the stat about like the all Asian cast was like Joy Luck Club, then Saving Face, then all the way up to uh, Crazy Rich Asians. So, not not a ton of swings in that uh, in that cultural cultural perspective in cinema. Right. I, re- I recommend it. On the whole, it, it's pretty charming and. Uh, you know, if you're a fan of rom-coms, it's kind of a, it's romantic and comedic. And, you know, some of us are suckers for that. Yup. I am. Yep. <laughs> so I recommend that. And I'll just quickly summarize to Best Picture winners. I watched, I watched Out of Africa, which I've been putting, putting off for forever. It's the Sidney Pollock 1985 Best Winner. Best Picture winner with uh, Meryl Streep, again, in a Best Picture winner. She's a Danish woman who goes to Africa, and it's it's a, it's also exactly what you think it is. It's, it's like, gorgeous. The African location is, is beautiful. Cinematography is great, and it's just not, it's just not my movie. <laughs> it's just, there's nothing really that's that memorable about what happens. It's basically just, this is just something that happened. And look, there's a lion, and then the movie's kind of over. Um, <laughs> not my cup of tea. Very expertly made, obviously, but uh, not... Uh, was uh, was Streep better than Redford in the film? Streep does... She acts in it, as opposed to Redford is basically just, you know, he kind of coasts at, through charisma in it. Yeah, I just know he wasn't. No- well, I think he wasn't nominated. Um, I think she was, and then I think there was a supporting one, but I don't know who that was. Yeah, Klaus Maria Brandauer, who's a German actor. Who he's- yeah. <laughs> Klaus Maria Brandauer. <laughs> um, yeah, Redford's Redford's Redford. So he he's charming, and he's he's portraying like an English game hunter, and he's uh, he, he sounds like he's from you know Southern California. <laughs> he just didn't even try to do an accent. <laughs> Nice. You know, don't don't need to. You're Robert right? Redford. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'll just do my Redford thing. Um, Street is very. Uh, she she loves digging into accent, and she's she's very dug in. Um, she, she's still pretty good. She's very. Uh, I like to I like to say she's kind of an empathy generating machine. You know, no matter what movie she's in, she, you kind of either root for her or against her. You kind of care anyway. So right. she's Street in it. But again, I think uh, it's just not my kind of movie, but understand other people might like it. And then I watched, uh, I'll, t- I'll touch even more, less, more briefly, less fully. More or less briefly is correct, I think. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, I, I watched uh, Around the World in 80 Days. The 60s? Nice. Is that right? This, yeah, the 60s version. There, there was no Jackie Chan or Steve Coogan in this one. 
Did you watch the wrong version? <laughs> I yeah. did, yeah. I'm sorry, David. Yeah, Jackie Chan was snubbed by the Oscars. <laughs> um, the movie is is three and a half hours long, which is better than, eight, better than eighty days, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's like a full intro that is read by Edward R. Murrow as like a news report about the space race that goes on for like twenty minutes. <laughs> oh my god! And there's a full intermission, um, like uh, with with score and everything, and they. The pretty badass outro that's designed by Saul Bass, who does all the cool angular cartoons and stuff. Yeah, that part cool. That part's cool, but uh, the rest of it is is essentially just going from one location to another without uh, much stakes going on or much uh, stake in uh, cultural accuracy or non stereotypical stuff going on. Which you know, here's probably par for the course for the uh, for the decade when it came out. Um, Isn't it one of uh, B- Buster Keaton's like last twenty movies or so? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a very challenging cameo spotting game at this point. Like some fifty, sixty years after it came out, right? Like, okay, I know who Frank Sinatra is. I think that's Marlena Dietrich. That's Buster Keaton. And then someone coming on screen. I was like, I think you're supposed to be famous. <laughs> Because you're mugging like you are, but uh, <laughs> I'll look you up on IMDb afterwards. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's got, and it's also it's uh, you know a classic of Shirley MacLaine plays a Indian uh, Kali death goddess print oh, good. priestess, and uh, yeah, Peter Laurie is a Japanese steward on a train. So just you know, nailing the uh, representation there. It's uh yeah, it's, it's kind of a bonkers movie that it won Best Picture, but must have been. Uh, I was thinking it must have been like blow blew people's minds because it was shot on location for all like a bunch of these places. They'll go to a Buddhist temple in in uh, in the Far East. They'll go to like an actual bullfight in Spain, which in the era of green screens and you know big sets, it was probably like quite a feat of filmmaking to do that. Hmm. So it's uh yeah, it's pretty much something I've watched now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's your emotional connection to it. It's something I've watched now. So now I've watched every best picture going back until Oliver right now. Oh wow. The nineteen sixty eight best picture winner. And I started it and haven't finished it. So I'm uh I'm going to try to get through as, as much as I can. This feels like a good time to do it. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Only other Not thing you. I talk about is, uh, sorry, um, I've been playing Final Fantasy VII Remake. Oh, yeah. It's been, uh, Chris, have you started playing it at all? Or Yes, I've started, and I'm a good chunk in. I'm, I'm up to uh, Chapter 9 in the wall market. Nice. Yeah, I'm on Chapter 14 also in the wall market. Really? Yeah, well, you go, you know, you go back and forth a little bit there. Um, it's a it's a great experience. Um, I probably can't even give a non-biased review just because the 1997 original is so ingrained in my DNA at this point that just seeing a 3D version would blow my socks off already. But aside from that, it's also super fun game. The battle yeah. mechanics make every battle fun, which is a good 
good thing considering you're getting into tons of battles. My biggest complaint. Dog in here. Uh, he can't decide if he wants to be in or out, so I keep like kicking him out, and then he keeps opening the door. So just uh, listeners deal with it. Um, but uh, my 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 main complaint with the game is I find myself looking forward to combat way more than I really should because I think that like some of the walk and talk shit is like really really overdone the like all the anime style like grunting and moaning and sighing it's just like doesn't sit well with me because it's fully voice acted um which the first with Travis E7 originally was not um so they seem to like really abuse that they have voice actors and they are constantly like quipping and going like oh ah just like in conversation and it's just like, I don't know. I, I, I don't dig that, but you know, but I still want to talk to every NPC. Like I still want to like chase Johnny around, even though I know that he's like <clears throat> a pretty problematic character um, and just to like talk to him. But yeah, sometimes the, sometimes the non-combat shit just goes on so long. Yeah, uh, I, I would agree. I do think that, like, I also look forward to side quests when you finally get uh, you get um, mobility to move around a little bit rather than just on rails. Yeah. And kind of flesh out some extra parts of characters. Um, yeah, I just really hate when, like, <clears throat> when they're, when, like, the objective is, like, go meet up with Tifa at Seventh Heaven, and you're just, like, walking around the town, and then there's, like, this one street you can't go down. And like you start going down, and like a, like a message pops up, and then Cloud remarks to himself, "Like, oh, I really shouldn't be going. Like, I shouldn't go there now." And it's like, just put up a fucking barricade. Like, don't don't show me this like open pathway, and then use like an invisible wall to stop me from going there. Like, that's I think it's poor game design. Um, the, the, like with this faux open world thing, but. Maybe I'm being a little nitpicky because I'm looking for things to dislike because I also am looking at it with uh, uh, whatever colored glasses I think that people talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a trip. What I did think is an interesting uh, introduction they're doing is there's a lot more characters that are just like regular townspeople you don't really engage with, but you can hear their conversations. They're kind of a good, uh, I don't know if it's a Greek chorus or something, but after something happens, like everybody in the town is talking about it. And it really, uh, it's part of the like kind of protagonist bias. I think when I originally played it is you're an eco-terrorist group and you blow up uh, essentially a power plant and it blows up and it affects part of a city. In the 1997 version, you're on the protagonist side because you, you did it. And you're like, well, you know, it's an evil corporation. They deserve it. I think it's interesting that they they voice the actual impact of what that would be to the people by having all these, you know, hundreds of characters that actually populate the town saying, like, all kinds of stuff, like, I'm going to lose my job. You know, my, my daughter's missing. Where is she? It's the actual impact of eco-terrorism on these people and, you know, what's going on, the waves of propaganda that happen. I think it kind of uh, deepens it a little bit, makes it a little more more felt the the actions that you're doing yeah and the like I, I like walking by and hearing like a group of people talk about like rolling blackouts 
that they're experiencing now or like having trouble getting like clean running water um, because there is a part of the game where you blow up one of these plants and an entire plate like drops and crushes like a whole city of people. <laughs> so like uh, it's, it's, it's bad. I mean, you really do consider him more of like a mercenary who's working with people as opposed to like a team of good guys doing shit. Um, but that and like, you know, probably intentionally so the first Midgar in Final Fantasy seven was like very cartoonish um, in the way that they kind of portrayed like the slums where it's, you know, clearly, I mean, there's a man who just lived in a pipe. Like that's just like, you know, it's over the top or whatever. And that's fine. Like it's, it's a fantasy setting. They, they can do whatever the fuck they want. But like, I feel like they've done a lot better at like modernizing that and not being so cartoonish about it with, just like the realism and the environmental storytelling where like you go into wall market and there are houses stacked on top of each other, but it's not like, like goofy shit. These are like, I feel like it's more believable that these people are, you know, just like minimum wage earners who are getting by and like, this is the best they can do. And these shops are like all bright neon and gross. Um, and that's the rich part, you know? Uh, so I, 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 I really do like the game design from that aspect with the like ambient conversations and with just like how they, they rebuilt the city. Um, but yeah, I just, I just can't, I just can't with Aerith. She's just the most like, she's awful to listen to. She's just yeah. too cutesy and just saccharine and I just fucking hate it. And yeah. I know at some point they give you a choice of like, who do you want to side with, Tifa or Aerith? I'm going to like throw her in the dumpster so fast. <laughs> yeah, the whole game keeps, it's like a Final Fantasy VII remake. The colon should be like waifu simulator. Yeah. It's almost ever like, especially with Jesse early on, and there's some more characters later on <clears throat> you'll, you'll meet that are in that aesthetic. Um, you know, it's just, it's part of being Japanese, I guess, right? <laughs> it's the trade-off. <laughs> Super fucking Japanese. Yeah, I watched Terrace House. I know. <laughs> there you go. Um, so maybe I'll talk a little bit more about it when I finish. I heard that there's a, uh, you know, it, it parts from the original game with some some story choices. So it'll be interesting to kind of check back in after that. But been enjoying it quite a bit. Oh. Me, I'll go. Yep. Am I the last one? I haven't even. Yeah, I think I am. Um, I feel like I haven't been listening, so. <laughs> um, what are these things on my ears? Oh, shit. <laughs> I, uh, I, I haven't really. There, there's not much I want to go deep on because I haven't really watched anything that's that's new to us or the podcast. But I have uh, I've rewatched a few movies from recent years that uh, I kind of wanted to give another shot to for various reasons. Um, I rewatched La La Land because I wasn't sure how it would st- – like I, I just wasn't sure if I would still love it. And uh, the whole thing about the white guy saving jazz didn't really bother me all that much in this movie. I still just, I, I'm overcome by just the, I love the romance in the movie and I love all the, the singing and the dancing. So still yeah, love movie, man. I've, I've rewatched it in the past six months or so. And I was the same way. Like I totally forgot about that again when I watched it again. <laughs> and I was just overcome with the charisma of the two leads in that movie. Yeah, the the end of that movie too. The 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 vision of the of what could have been is just the it's it's gutting. It's so sad, but they're John okay. Legend was still annoying a little bit. <laughs> Both times. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, that's when I saw, the um, when I saw La La Land, I hadn't seen Singing in the Rain before. You seeing La La Land, then seeing Singing in the Rain, the little kind of dream ballet at the end is like extremely influenced by that sequence in Singing in the Rain. I'd say. I'm sure. Yeah, I do need like to see that. Loving, loving homage, probably. Right. From the same Oscar race, I watched. I rewatched Arrival, um, which also I, I just further cements my belief that this is one of the best sci-fi movies of ever, maybe ever made. Um, I love Arrival so much and it still, it still works for me. And um, it's kind of a, kind of a perfect sci-fi movie because it deals with big themes, but also the actual sci-fi element of it is, is pretty great too. So um, still yeah, recommend I was, that. I was curious how it, how it would do on a rewatch. I'd meant to rewatch it just because of the film structure but I haven't mm-hmm. seen it again. It's still rewarding. Yes. Yes. Um, Were you watching it all with that in mind? Kind of, you know what I mean? Like watching the sixth sense and looking for nobody to talk to Bruce Willis kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, this is the third time I've seen it. Yeah. So um, I, I think uh, I watched it twice during that Oscar race season. Um, but I, I, so I knew the film worked in that regard. I knew that like that uh, that stuff is, is there. They they never really make reference to it. Um, it. It's it's done the way it needs to be done, which is they 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 have her remembering it, but she also looks puzzled as to how she remembers this. Like her memories are both like sad and also confusing, which which is really interesting. Um, I think Amy Adams is phenomenal in that movie. It is still stunning to me that she was not nominated for, especially with how much love that movie got. You know what I mean? It makes no sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She's the emotional crux, like the uh, you know center of the movie, and that's that's a huge key to that movie. Also. Oh shit! Yeah, um, yeah. That is mind-boggling. Uh, I, I rewatched a 2019 movie that uh, was not on my top ten list, but I now realize it definitely should have been. And that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which uh, I think made a, it at least made Chris's top ten, right? It did. Yeah, yeah it did. Um, yeah, it was in my top five, I think. Top it was five. not in my top ten. Yeah. So I think that movie worked better for me on a rewatch because I think the first time I watched it, maybe just due to it being a Quentin Tarantino movie, you're just – I was kind of expecting – something big or something funny or something Tarantino-esque around the corner constantly through that movie. And there's, uh, that's not really the movie that delivers that kind of thing, except at the very end. But I, I think on a rewatch, you, you, not all movies are necessarily served better by a rewatch, but a movie where you're not wondering if you've spent a lot of time in the first time you watched it, if you spent a lot of time wondering what was going to happen and what was, you know, how the plot was going to unfold. You sometimes don't get necessarily the time to just focus on just hanging out with characters. And I think that's what this movie really is. It's about hanging out in a place and a time and uh, with characters that you really come to like. Um, I, was, I really liked Cliff and Rick as just best buds. And yeah. um, also it's, it's funny that an angle of this movie that I'm sure some people noticed the first time they watched it, but I did not, which is uh, 
in it, you know, Rick Dalton's career is kind of going down the tubes and it's uh, the one thing that could resurrect his career is by going in a new direction and going with like a spaghetti Western is becoming a spaghetti Western star. And you think about like uh, actors today who, you know, are their careers are dwindling. There's no, there's not exactly spaghetti Western, but there is a director who's obsessed with spaghetti Westerns. And that director is Quentin Tarantino who loves to cast old failing actors in his movies uh so i think the message of this movie is uh hey you old uh you know actors with dwindling careers just be in a quentin tarantino movie and you can save hollywood and prevent murder so <laughs> nice. i think that's that's the ultimate message of the movie for me it makes sense to me <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i loved it and dicaprio is is so good in that movie yeah that movie had the 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 two scenes that i remember the most i mean the, the ending but it's it's pit on the ranch and it's DiCaprio with the girl. Yeah. Um, and both those uh, were short enough to not have a movie to be that long. And, <laughs> you know, I think that's the, so I guess that's the thing that was also my takeaway the first time I watched it, which was like, you, you, you're waiting on the big scenes. You're waiting on like, what's this movie's version of the Inglorious Bastards bar scene going to be? And what's this movie's like, you know, whatever there you can pick them from every quentin tarantino movie these great sure. memorable scenes and they it had them and it felt like a lot of waiting to get to that but this time i i appreciated the time to get to those scenes much more because i just knew where they were in the movie and like i really enjoyed the scenes of just like brad pitt cruising around la in you know listening to the radio and whatnot and so it i don't know this was just a it felt much more like a movie I just wanted to hang out with um, this time around, which Dude, I really, really like. Makes makes a ton of sense. I think like the the pace was one of the things that I loved the most, which is why I was in my top five. Is that it's the first quarant- <laughs> I <almost said> quarantino. First <laughs> 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 oh, Tarantino not to have like a cocaine fueled frenetic pace to it. It was kind of just a, you know mm-hmm. just in the vibe. Yeah, it was very un-Quentin in that respect. Yeah, and, and I can absolutely see why, like, we had some friends talk to, who, who are big Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino fans who were like, ah, this, is my, this is the worst movie he's made. Like, it's so slow, and it is slow. Like, I think slow is not always bad. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's slow worked much better than the slow of Hateful Eight. It is a direct comparison. Um, yeah. But, I mean, like I said, I still gave the movie four stars. It was probably in my top 20 that year. Yeah. Uh, and I liked it mm-hmm. probably less than all three of y'all. So. Did you feel as uncomfortable with the Margot Robbie feet worship scene uh, than you did the first time you watched it? I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's there are, there are bits of that movie that are needlessly weird, but uh, I, I don't know. I was, was not as bothered by aspects of that movie as a lot of a lot of people, a lot of the. Oh, there he is. Hey. Yeah, we are, yep, and we're recording. recording again. Perfect. So. I revisited Knives Out uh, because I was, this was a movie I really loved and I felt like eh, I'll at least enjoy hanging out with it again. And uh, I was curious to see if how much that movie relied on the mystery. And yeah. like, if it would be the same, uh, and I think it's one of the most rewatchable murder mysteries ever. I was, I was going to say, my guess would be uh, only having seen it, you know, 
the Friday it came out or whatever and never revisiting it, that it relies on the mystery almost none. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it has the, it has the like surprise mystery because the actual mystery of who killed him isn't really the mystery right. it's solved right, right, in the right. first 40 minutes. But then right. there's the, the, the extra mystery of, is just sort of like, why is this still a movie? <laughs> like, that's kind of the mystery, which is yeah. like, what, what, what are we going to do? Like, what's the rest of the story? There's, there's more to unfold. What could it be? And uh, that still, it still works well. It's just, I don't know. It's a fun movie. And it's, uh, I, I'm glad because sometimes whodunits are, you know, they, they rely so much on the whodunit that they, they lose a little steam afterwards. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know how murder on the Orient express would play after having seen that. movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that, the, movie's, the one- that movie's just got such good a, a cast though, that like, I mean, Michael Shannon is so great. Anna Armas is so great. Mm-hmm. Chris Evans looks like he's having so much fucking fun, not being Captain America. Yeah. Uh, I would happily watch that movie again for sure. Same. Well, I, re- I recommend it. And then the one last movie that I rewatched was uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which uh, I, I remember liking when it came out. I was not necessarily effusive with my praise for that movie, but I remember thinking, oh, it's, it's a good action movie. But I don't know if I watched it like while well, I was sleepy one night or something, but man, that, that, is, that movie was off the charts amazing this time yeah. around. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites of the decade. Yeah. It was Chris's number one that year, I think. <laughs> We yeah. same. well, I don't think we did this. That predated the podcast. Yeah, it did. I just know that that was the one Chris was like championing for. Like mine was the room. It was the same year, uh, not the room. Room. Um, <laughs> big difference. <laughs> yeah, big difference. Um, that's the, the year of Spotlight. I want to say. Uh, Birdman, I believe. Um, I that was think... the Oscars we watched at your house, David. Yeah, because I remember yeah. making. I think DiCaprio was... won for the Revenant that year. Revenant was supposed to win, or could have maybe win, but it was Spotlight. You're right. This Birdman um, was a slam dunk, I think. I yeah, remember soapboxing, the, like, how does this movie, which has won all of these technical awards, like, how is it, like, so far down for, like, able to win Best Picture? And I don't think like, it was that far down, honestly. Um, especially getting that director job. No, it ended up. Year. It ended up winning the most Oscars that night. I remember, yeah, like yeah. five Oscars with like. I don't think it was the Birdman year because I think it won cinematography. It was, I think it was Spotlight year. I think Birdman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Fifteen. That's right. Yeah. So it's a. Uh, I mean, I I don't. Yeah, I don't know that I'm. I don't know that I'm completely in lockstep with with Chris's soapbox point, but I am definitely partially on board with it because this is a movie that is technically great on so many um that it probably if i had to vote right now it probably get my best picture of 2015 uh, if we if we you know did a retro cast in in that respect yeah i mean i, I think my, my argument that night with chris i think he agreed was like yeah but spotlight's not even Trying to get any of these awards that Mad Max sure. is winning, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So are we only giving the best picture movie to action movies now? Because and those are all to that, and it's just a fucking hard choice. And totally would have been fine with Mad Max winning best picture that year. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's tough. It's, well, it's hard I've... to compare movies that aren't anything alike. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no. I have one more thing that I will very briefly talk about. Uh, so you know how like uh, there's a lot of uh, 
in recent years, there's been a lot of movies, and, and by recent, I mean like the last 20 ish years, there's been a lot of uh, TV shows that have taken like old properties and made them like, I don't know, for the new audience. So, like Sherlock. And uh, there's a Netflix show recently called Dracula that's, you know, basically just taken a, a story that everybody kind of knows the basics of and um, presents it with a, with a modern spin. So I thought, well, you know, it could be fun. Uh, a, a show I ran across, uh, a BBC series called Robin Hood. Uh, are you familiar with this show? No. Came out about 15 years ago. It was like late, maybe mid to late aughts. And okay. uh, it's one of the worst TV shows I've ever been exposed <laughs> to. It is horrible it is excruciating i was i was uncomfortably laughing at the people involved during the pilot episode i only made it through two episodes and then i I had to bail i had to quit but um yeah it's from the same like studio and company i I know it wasn't made by the same team that made sherlock but you would still think that like the 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 same studio and the same channel that that, that produced that not that long after uh, came up with this absolute drivel. I mean, the casting is, it's, it's got one of the most uncharismatic people as Robin hood, like literally one of the most characteristic fictional characters in history. Uh, this guy did not belong in this. He, he's, he belongs as an extra on like one tree Hill is where this guy probably belongs. It, it's, it's really, it's a really bad show. Anyone, anyone we'd know who's the Robin Hood guy? No, I, I think this effectively killed all careers <laughs> of everyone involved. Uh, this, this show is terrible. It's uh, and what's weird is it's not like a particular decision that makes it terrible. It's just, it's, it, it is, they, they are just telling the story that like amateurs would choose to tell. Um, it's the basic Robin Hood story uh they're just it's so poorly acted and so poorly directed and so poorly edited and everything that it's just it is shocking how how much i hated this tv show that i uh, <laughs> that i wanted to like i was i, I like robin hood stories and there's kind of never really been a a great one i mean robin hood men in tights is more about the jokes than it is the actual like robin hood story and other than that I, i've never really seen a, a robin hood story that's been well, I watched the Jamie Foxx one, and uh, it was also awful, so you're correct. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. It's, it's really disappointing. The BBC should have gotten this right, and they got it so wrong. Nice. But anyway, that's what I don't recommend, and that's it. All right, so move on to Reality Roundup. Is there any reality or competition shows anyone watched in the last week? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't have much to say. I think the uh, the final episode was good uh, of Survivor, um, season 40. Um, but I think the the going into that week and going into the previous three weeks, uh, Tony just had to make it to the final three, pretty much. And once he beat Sarah in fire, which was an awesome moment and probably one of my top Survivor moments ever, um, it's that whole fire-making challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. He was going to win. And I think... And I, I mean, I'm pretty confident in this that the second Matt chose Sarah to go make fire, she effectively chose the winner of Survivor at that point. Yeah, and it was going to be whoever won that fire making challenge. No, I don't she think gave, she gave the yeah, she gave the narrative to just straight away right there. Now, in her defense, if she takes out Tony, I'm not positive that she wins anyway. Um, 
I'm not sure she had a good path at that point with yeah. Sarah and Tony in the game. But yeah, she she had a much saying, better chance anyway. She was saying that uh, like in interviews afterwards uh, that uh, that is the number one regret she has for her game was uh, not trying to make fire against Tony. Um, and I think that uh, like some of the obviously Rob when he voted. Um, you know, the king of the, the confessional comments yeah. um, said that that would have been the perfect game for her. Uh, right. And uh, I think that a lot of jury members have come out and said that they would have voted for Nat had she made fire and beaten Tony. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I think that she could have, she would have won if she had made fire against Tony and beaten him. I mean, she would have, at least it would have been very, probably very close. Very close. Her and Sarah. Yeah. Um, the 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 one mis- okay so like if you suppose she comes back into the game and she knows she knows she can't make fire let's just say that's the case even though she probably can she just has no confidence in her fire making ability my question i think where she screws up at least is by taking ben out of the game because if you can't make fire then you need to at least uh kind of control and keep alive someone who reliably can. Um, also somebody who the jury is probably not going to be voting for, even if they win the fire making challenge. So right. that's, uh, that's sort of where I think her mistake was in conjunction with her not wanting to make fire. Which is why putting Michelle there at least seems like the second best option after her. Sarah seems like the worst thing to do. Like, I really, I don't, I don't, I think she was so tired. I do. And as I love Nat and I like and respect her game. And she made a lot of mistakes when she got back in. But I mean, fuck, she had been starving herself for 30 days straight um, and kicking everybody's ass over there. So I don't really, you know, want to bash her too much. But like, like, fuck, man. I mean, yeah, you said Michelle at least. And Michelle beats Tony. Sarah's got a chance, but I think Nat's got a small one too. Um, And, uh, yeah, I'm with you. If you knock her out yourself, you at least make it reasonable to think that somebody might might vote for you. Yeah, I think that she was hoping that her argument of I came back from Edge of Extinction and I dismantled this alliance one by one, I think she was hoping that that would have played better than it did. It was the worst mm-hmm. jury argument of the night, for sure. Yeah. Or the worst tribal argument of the night at, at the final tribal. Well, it's, it's like I got it. I got it all the way down to one person. It's like, yeah, but you left the one person who's yeah. been best. Uh, yeah, she's trying to. She's trying she's to trying. do what she can. It is. Yeah. It was the worst argument of the three, mostly because the other two had great arguments. I right. think. It was uh, one of the best final troubles I've ever seen, top to bottom. I, I actually kind of feel like Michelle maybe should have gotten some votes and uh, maybe could, should have finished second at least if you're. If you're not voting for Tony, I would have voted for Tony. I think right. most people would have voted for Tony. Right. Yes. But yeah, Tony actually played one of the best Survivor seasons I've ever seen, and it might be, it might be the sort of the perfect season, which is um, never got a vote cast against him. So obviously, he's it was the clear him. winner from like seven, and never got a vote cast against him, and had to play his idol early. I mean, and and, and was in control, and was also. Uh, he won four challenges and i mean there's there's not really an aspect to the survivor where he did not excel he was even great at the social game this season yeah i mean the edit we got to of uh makes him look even smarter with him being like we need to at least pretend like she has something and mm-hmm. sarah and ben both being like she doesn't have anything like makes him look even more in control than than 
uh, he was before that. Yeah, I wonder how much of his season uh, got left on the cutting room floor of him using the spy nest. Because from I don't know if he was just like selling that he used it more often than he did, or if you know we got kind of a edited down version of how many times he went up to the spy nest. Because yeah. I would I would love to know that he was up there at least like once or twice a day. Uh, Brent's got a story for you. I think. Well, well, I do, I I don't know about the spy nest, and it sounds like he chalked up the spy nest as a huge thing that he did all season. So he apparently was spending a lot of time up there. I don't know. I don't know the details. I don't know how long per trip, but uh, the one funny thing that somebody uh, Dalton Ross of uh, entertainment weekly is probably one of the more well-known like survivor reporters out there. And he did a, yeah. an interview with Tony right after the finale. And he said, uh, how much got, how much wound up on the cutting room floor? And he said a lot of stuff. He said a lot of the tricks that I pulled all, you know, they didn't show like at one point tony just went out and made a fake idol uh and woke nick up in the middle of the night to tell him he found it like bothered nick woke nick up from his sleep to like shake him up and just be like hey hey, we gotta run off and they run off together he's like look what i found and he said at that point nick thought he had two idols so like they were just scared of going against tony because not only could tony protect himself tony could also like protect whatever target you came up with that Tony didn't want to go with. Right. So no telling what all he did. He, he he's, he did, he, it's shocking that he was able to do it against such seasoned players because he kind of did that his first season, which was he just lied and made people scared of voting him out because um, right. they just thought it was going to backfire on them. Right. But huh. it's a beautiful, Beautiful season from Tony. Yeah, it was a great, great season too. Watch. He, he had the worst odds, Vegas odds, coming into the season to win of any player. Nice. He had such a bad showing at uh, Game Changers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw the uh, the someone did like a write. I think AV Club did a write up of or Brent was this the thing you shared the it was oh, like the, the ringer. Yeah, the ringer. Sorry, that was it. The odds of the of each contestant going in versus the current odds and like Tony's odds were like insanely yeah like skewed against him and then like by the time it gets down to the final four it's like oh it, there's like a 50 50 chance that Tony wins yeah yeah the ringer had a lot of good content last week over uh, all about survivor um they had, they had their like survivor hall of fame picks and their uh top 100 moments in survivor history which was uh, it was fine but it was it was a lot of pretty good. They had a survivor you should dictionary. find the uh, heroes versus villains winners reveal video and check that out. Uh, it's pretty hilarious. Um, I watched all that, Brett. But me and you uh, were talking about yeah. Russell Hance telling Jeff Probst that Survivor's broken and it's not fair because he um, didn't win. Because he didn't win. Um, the fact that Sandra and Parvati both received votes is proof that it's broken. Yeah, he. Um, he he said yeah. that uh, the way to fix the game would be to let America vote on. Give, give America a percentage of the vote. And then he said, uh, Jeff Probst was like, well, that's a game. And you might win that game. But that's not this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's pretty great. Have you been watching any of the Ponderosa stuff, Brent, or TJ? I, I watched all of the Ponderosa videos after the finale that night. I was up way late on uh, finale night watching. Uh, yeah, maybe you talked on the phone until like one. Yeah, I watched all those right after that. 
it was uh the ponderosas were pretty good they, they did all the uh the people who lost the challenge they did all of them got like a series it's like seven different videos that that all videos just sort of like there's there's not a focus on any one person right yeah i've and only then, i've only seen chapters one through six and i didn't go get all the way through six because six is just about amber and rob and i just uh, don't oh maybe it was six that's the last one i think okay okay um and then there's uh there's a denise one and a ben and a sarah one i've seen the denise i haven't seen the ben and i haven't seen the sarah but i i i, I like those um mm-hmm. I bet the people who run that Ponderosa complex are, I know it's not actually called Ponderosa, um, but are pretty upset that they didn't get to use it <laughs> more this season. Yeah. the uh, I, I really like just seeing like the people be friends after. Uh, I don't know. That's the sweetheart in me. But it's like when, the, when Sophie and Kim are sitting there in one of the Ponderosas yeah. and Kim's like, you're going to be a friend for life. And Sophie's like still hesitant because she's just like, yeah, I, I have trouble trusting anyone. And Kim's like, yeah, no, I get that. I get that in the game, but the game's over. I still want to be friends with you so yeah. we can be friends. Right. Yeah. I like the, uh, the Tyson, Wendell, and Jeremy uh, yeah. friendship. They're really fun, especially Wendell, like calling Jeremy grandpa the whole time. <laughs> yeah. When he does the tier ranking. Of, That's really funny. It's really funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend. They're all over YouTube. People have like ripped and pirated them by now. But yeah, check out the Ponderosa stuff if you were a fan of this past season. It's fun. Nice. Um, we got any breezy before we go to the what to watch? I had a little bit of breezy. Uh, Hit us with it. Yeah, just <clears throat> quick hits and stuff. I don't think we've gotten to talk about uh, Taika Waititi doing a Star Wars thing. Yeah. Um, very welcome news to me, especially him putting a stamp on Marvel was such a success. I'd love to see him uh, in the Star Wars universe, other than the assassin droid he was already playing, which was also great in The Mandalorian. Yeah. I'm excited, but also a little skeptical, only because this is a series that has run off uh, a lot of its more original creative voices that have been attached to it over the years. Yeah, that is fair. So um, I do hope, I mean, I want him to be able to make the movie that he wants to make. It's pretty much mm-hmm. my, and I'm afraid he won't be, but. Sure. Reasonable fear at this point, I think. Mm-hmm. We also have a dual Joe Exotic narrative series coming out. Nicholas Cage, right? Nicholas Cage is in one. But yes. I'm trying to get Tara Reed to be Carol Baskin in. Yes, Same yes, way. yes. Um, and that's opposed to the one where Kate McKinnon's going to be Carol Baskin in a different one. She should be in the Nicolas Cage one, but I'm totally down for the Tara Reid one just to watch the dumpster <laughs> fire that that movie will be, or that series will be. Yeah. Um, I don't know. By the time it comes out, is there, isn't everyone going to be sick of Joe Exotic and yes. Tiger King and all that well, stuff? Well, you would think they'd be sick of Nicolas Cage by now, but <laughs> we just need more, it turns out. He's got this movie out now where he lets a jaguar loose on a boat to help him hunt a human. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, doc- right? a documentary, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, I just said that sentence, and I'm like, yeah, I want to watch that. I need to watch that. I need to find it. <laughs> I'm sure it's awful and great. <laughs> um. Besides that, uh, let's see what else. Um. Hamilton's coming to Disney Plus. I guess that's a pretty pretty big thing. They yeah. put in like a year early to have a flashy thing for the summer. 
with a lot of original content kind of getting delayed or, or pushed back. I might actually see Hamilton. Yeah, I'm excited to finally give it a watch. It's in, the Heights, in the Heights coming out next year, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. It might be for awards. To, it might be out for awards for this year. Yeah, like a December release, maybe? Yeah, maybe. But everything's so up in the air right now, you know, you never know. It's June of 2021 is its release date right now. Oh, there you go. Um, then, I'm more excited about In the Heights than I am Hamilton. Just, <laughs> I don't know why, but it looks more like I might enjoy it. Um, this dog keeps busting into my room like the fucking SWAT team. They're kicking <laughs> the door open. I thought you were close to the door because TJ said he was excited about anything more than Hamilton. You were afraid that Kelly might burst in. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> she also loves in the heights though, so <laughs> I'm safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um besides that, just two sad ones, RIPs to Fred Willard, past yeah. uh eighty six. Always like almost the funniest person in anything he's in. Very ubiquitous comedic voice. He was I feel like he was in a handful of bad movies where he was the one good part. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. And then uh, Lynn Shelton. I don't know if you guys know director Lynn Shelton. She was 54, just passed away. Um, Mark Maron's uh, domestic partner. Um, <clears throat> recently, she's been in uh, TV, like did Glow, New Girl, Mindy Project, directed episodes of Mad Men, and uh, Little Fires Everywhere, I think that's what it's called right now. But she also is a huge, um, huge uh, mumblecore director. She did uh, Hump Day in t- 2009, which is a early Duplass, well, not early, but a great Duplass movie. Did uh, Your Sister's Sister, Sword of Truth, I think, from last year? I think mm-hmm. TJ. Sword of Trust. Yeah. Sword of Trust. Trust, that's it. Yeah. She directed that and uh, just, just passed away at 54. Yeah, she had like a super rare blood disorder, I think. Mm-hmm. Kind of caught up to her quick. Recommend checking out her uh, her back catalog of some some smaller movies. We uh, really like uh, Pump Day with Mark Duplass and Josh Hamilton. I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's who's in it. Anything else, David? Nope, just trying to end breezy on a bummer. Yeah, you you succeeded. <laughs> um, we got a couple of movies uh, releasing to streaming services or VOD this weekend coming up. Um. Let me make sure I actually did the dates right when this post. Yeah, I did. Uh, you got The Lovebirds coming out, um, release on Netflix. Uh, that's uh, Issa Rae and Camille Nanjani, directed by Michael Showalter. Uh, okay. The premise is a couple experiences a defining moment in their relationship when they are unintentionally embroiled in a murder mystery as they journey to clear their names and takes them, uh, takes them from one extreme circumstance to the next, and they must figure out a bunch of shit, I'm sure. We also have the movie Inheritance, directed by Vaughn Stein. Um, it's a thriller starring Lily Collins. It's Simon Pegg. Um, sounds like Lily Collins follows some shit. Her dad left her when she died and finds Simon Pegg tied up in like a dungeon in their Manhattan apartment. And goes from there. And then uh, The Trip is getting its movie edit uh, for its fourth series. Uh, the Trip to Greece is this one. That's the Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon, uh, fourth series. And then uh, with all the previous ones, they've just added down the series to a feature film. Uh, and that's getting released to VOD uh, this weekend as well. 
I'm going to go with Inheritance. It might be the worst movie of the three in the end, but it at least uh, intrigues me a little bit. I'm sure the trip. I'm sure the trip will be good, but uh, uh, kind of know what I'm getting into too with that. I think. Yeah, I think Inheritance is probably going for the most ambition out of those those movies. Right. I think I'm. It's tough to go between the trip and Lovebirds for me. Um, the trip was kind of diminishing returns. The first one's great. Second one's pretty good. The third one, the trip to Spain. It's it's not as good as either of those. So I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go. Lovebirds reuniting Kumail with the uh, big sick Michael Showalter. Probably not gonna be as good, but uh, I'm sure it'll be entertaining. Yeah. I'll pick. Uh, well, boy, I, I actually really I'm intrigued by all three of these, and I think I would I would happily watch any of them. But I'm gonna go Lovebirds as well. I'm uh, again. It's. It's kind of for the same reason as David, which is uh, Kumail Nanjiani and, and Michael Showalter. So I'm, I'm in for that. I'll go with The Inheritance just to make it a split. Yeah, so watch either one of those. And, uh, that's don't watch the trip. Don't watch the trip, I'm sure. If you, if you were going to watch the trip, you were going to watch the trip anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but, yeah, that's what's coming out this weekend. All right, and then I think that does it for Talkie Talk, the podcast for me by us. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast uh, and your podcasting app, now including Spotify. We're on Spotify. Yay. Do it. Even if you don't use Spotify uh, for podcasts, just subscribe to us anyway. Just delete it. That's okay. No one has to know. Um. Also, reviews help, and you can catch our uh, Facebook group, our TVs by Us group, um, Movies by Us, Games by Us, and we got our Gmail, themediabyus at gmail.com, our Twitter, at themediabyus. Um, I think that's all of our socials. I um, want to say thanks to the Willow Walkers for the intro. Willow Walkers! Willow Walkers! Willow Walkers. And thanks to Boo Reefa for the intro. And I want to say thanks to you guys for 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 doing this. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you, friends. Thanks. Yeah, friendship. And uh, see you guys listening to us. Uh, We appreciate y'all a lot. We'll see you through your ears. Catch you on the flippity flop. (laughs) Through your ears. That's horrifying. Okay, let's let's quit. Yeah, let's stop the recording. Hi for now. Kicking rocks down old dusty roads. Small town slowpokes, long time ago. Kicking out records of all the things that I know. All 